morning, everybody. From time to time in Pansy Chapel, we launch into a series of messages. And this particular series is going to be called Love and Truth, and it's part one. There's going to be many parts to this series. It's going to take, I can't tell you how many, let's just call it a fall series, okay? Jesus, boy, is it good to know you. I thank you, Lord, that we have Moseses who have gone on before us who are lifting their hands in, to you that we might take territory in this battle. Thank you that we have your truth, your word, and your love with us. What a blessing to know you. Amen. In this series of messages, we're going to be asking some questions that you might find relevant as you consider what the banter of in our society today, okay? Questions like, do people from all religions go to heaven? Or just Christians? What about the sincere Muslim? What about the devoted Hindu? What about the guy who has sacrificed his entire life to be a Buddhist monk? What about the Native Americans who are worshipping spirits? Are they worshipping the same spirit we're worshipping? Just with different words? Does the Bible... In the news today, you would read... If you're a news reader or a news listener you would recognize that there is many articles and many opinions around the role of women and the treatment of women in our society and on our world today. Some would call it feminism. Does the Bible have anything to say about that? Ooh, what about abortion? Do we have the right to choose? Does a woman, a Christian woman, have the right to choose? What about sexuality? Where does the LGBTQ lifestyle fit into the church? Or does it? How should we handle that? Do any of those questions seem relevant to you? Do any of those questions... Have you ever been in a situation where you've either been forced into a situation where you had to come up with an answer to one of those questions on the spot? Or maybe as you read an article, hear somebody talking, you instantly clam up and a sense of fear comes over you because you recognize there's some tension around those. Are you guys with me? They're pretty relevant questions. There might come a time in Canada when how we answer those questions might determine which side of the jail door we're on. That's the series of messages we want to... This is the whole series. Let me, let me make this 
let me help you to understand the gist of where we're going by giving you a little bit of an example. I want you to think about the last time that you went to somebody's house and it was a new, it was a new build. It was a new house. Somebody, one of your friends or a co-worker or something, you go to their house and you come, this is the first time you've been to their house because they just built a, a new house. And you come there, what do you talk about? You talk about the house. Hey, I really like what you did with the place or whatever, or maybe I don't like what you did with the place. If everybody's got an opinion. Oh, you went with the two-story. Oh, well, you went with the bungalow, right? Well, that's interesting. I see what you did here with the wall, so I like that window. That's really neat, right? That's the kind of banter there is. Are you with me? Have you guys ever experienced something like that, where you've gone to somebody's house and you're talking about the structure of their house? You notice the roof line, you okay, you put peaks in there, okay, or you went, oh no, you just went to a straight bungalow. There's all these things, and yet in every one of those conversations, there's an assumption that was made that we often don't even think about because everybody makes the same one. Everybody who has built a house that I know about, you go there, they built the house on the foundation. Okay? Think about it. If they laid out the foundation, I'm just imagining like concrete, ICF, like ICF blocks filled with concrete or whatever, they laid it out 50 feet by 25 feet. When they built the house, it's 50 feet by 25 feet. How foolish would they be to have a foundation that's 50 feet by 25 feet and then build a house on top that's 30 by 60? Because if they built 30 by 60, hey, this corner over here, that corner over there, hmm, next spring, what's going on, right? What that foundation has to do with everything. And we assume that you build on the foundation. These questions that I just asked, you could call them hot button topics in our world today, particularly when you come into the church. They are like the walls of that structure. There's lots of talk about them. Lots of talk about them. But the talk about them and where to maybe where, where are we going to build this wall? How are we going to build this wall? There's lots of talk about that. But it's it's, it, it's, a, it's a useless and irrelevant talk if you haven't understood what the foundation looks like. Because you've got to build it on the foundation. Everybody knows that. Amen? You don't have to be an expert builder to know that. So in this series of messages, what we're going to start doing before we start talking about exactly where the walls get placed and how high they're going to be, and how thick they're going to be, and what kind of, what the roof is going to look like, we're going to talk about the foundation. And we're going to figure out where the, and we will not be able to fully grasp the foundation, but we're going to explain some truths about the foundation so we can understand where to build the thing. You with me? I'll explain some more as we go along, in case you're not sure. If you wanted to build a building out of rocks, would you just go to the field and start piling some on your lawn? Okay, should you do that? No. Okay. If you would or not, that's up to you, okay? 
that building just isn't going to get very tall. Like if you're trying to build a Colosseum, you're not going to get far by piling those things on the sand, right? Or on your lawn or wherever. Even if you live in Grunthal and all the rocks and the gravel, right? It's not going to work. What do you think you need? You need a serious foundation, right? So even, so uh, 60 years, uh, 70 years ago or whatever, there was a little settlement just about a half mile east of here called New Bergthal, and there's aerial photos that show actually the settlement, and that's interesting. If you want to see that, I can show you. But anyway, there's, if you walk out into my pasture, you can actually still see some, some foundations in the ground. They're stones in a square pattern. It wasn't aliens. It was just somebody building a house there. And they built it in a square. You can see it. They're flat rocks. Built a foundation. Which one of those rocks do you think is the most important? The corner one is the most important. Why is the corner one the most important? It ties them all together. It sets the whole direction for the rest of the building. Right? You wouldn't start that foundation by just grabbing any rock and throwing it down there and throwing another rock there and, and not the kind of when you're almost done the foundation, oh, here's a small round one. I guess I'll throw that one in the corner. That's not how you would do it, okay? Again, you don't have to be an expert rock foundation builder to grasp this concept. The cornerstone sets the entire direction. It's the reference point for every other rock, okay? If the other rocks are not conformed with the cornerstone, it's not a proper foundation. That cornerstone dictates which way the building is going to face, which way the walls are going to move or, or be in, in their shape. That cornerstone represents everything. You guys probably already know this, but who's the cornerstone? Jesus is the cornerstone. So when we are talking about Christianity, we actually need to know who Jesus is. Or you could say who God is. Before we discuss where the walls are going to get placed, we need to take a look at the foundation. And in the foundation of Christianity, which is primarily Jesus, there are two predominant, I'm going to use the word characteristics, of God. And they are love and truth. They represent who I use the word characteristics because they represent who God is. Let me read you some scripture. And in, by the way, just in case you're wondering, the, these white things up here are supposed to represent rocks that you, could, that you might imagine to use for a large stone structure. And part of that foundation representing who Jesus is are love and truth. Let's read 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, the living stone. So just in case you're a visitor here, what we do in Panzer Chapel, if there's yellow letters up there, you just read very loudly and boldly. You read the yellow letters. Let's try again. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, 
but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And then in verse 7, it says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That cornerstone represents Jesus, who has the most amazing, complete, inexhaustible love for us that you can ever imagine. That he became, he took on a likeness of humanity and came down to show his love for us by being a sacrifice for us so that we could come into a relationship with him. And he paid the entire penalty for our sin just so that we could spend eternity with him and we can have that gift for free when we come to him. In other words, when I say free, I mean there is no amount of works that you have to do in order to qualify. That would be like one sentence, and we're going to dig into that some more over the next number of weeks, but that kind of in a sentence describes, begins to describe the love of Jesus. But when we read about this living cornerstone, did you notice something in there? The cornerstone was rejected. If God is just love, why on earth would he ever be rejected? Do you know what it means for a stone to be rejected? And this is lots of scripture that uses exactly this, this example, this play on words, this picture, so that we can kind of understand. It's like the builders of the foundation were going, man, which stones are we going to use? And they started looking through the stones, and they picked up this stone. That's a good one. They put it in the foundation. They looked at another stone, and they said, that, stone's a, that stone is not worth putting into the foundation, and they rejected it. That's what we as humans did with Jesus. Why? Let's read verse 8 of the same passage. It says, And a stone, still talking about Jesus, that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. Jesus is a stone that makes people stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And it explains itself. Why do people stumble? Because they disobey. And that word disobey is, has a lot of power behind it. What is it saying? It's saying that God represents absolute truth. And if you wander from it, 
he'll fall. He is representing that he is the ultimate authority. I want you to think about that rejection because it forces us, when, when Scripture says something like this, people stumble because they disobey, it forces you into one of two camps. You can no longer, as soon as you understand this, you can no longer sit in the middle. You're automatically forced into a camp on one side. Either you're going to obey or disobey. And that's really uncomfortable But that's because there's truth. Let me just give you a sample. I want you to think about this thing of this idea that Jesus was rejected. And there is lots of scripture that says it. I'll just give you a very small sampling from scripture. In Isaiah 53, a prophetic passage about Jesus. It says, he was despised and rejected by mankind. Luke chapter 9 and Matthew and Mark talk about it and John talks about it and there's a whole bunch of books. I'm just picking Luke and he, and he said, the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking, he said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Those are Bible teachers, essentially. Luke 17, 25, but, he, but first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus, those words were prophetically spoken about Jesus hundreds of years before he was born. Jesus himself spoke those words. He knew they were going to happen. It was part of what the plan was. Why the rejection? Jesus was rejected for a similar reason that the prophets of the Lord, the prophets of Yahweh in the Old Testament, he was rejected for a similar reason that they were rejected. I'll give you two quick examples. The prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 8 and 9, it says, uh, uh, the word of the Lord has brought me, um, sorry, it says, whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So Jeremiah is saying, whenever he opens his, he's already surrendered himself to the Lord that he's just going to speak out whatever word the Lord gives him. And he says, whenever I speak, I'm crying out violence and destruction. And what's happening, if you read that in context, everybody hates him because of it. And if you read verse 7, it actually talks about how he's been, he almost feels like the Lord has tricked him. Because he's just openly speaking truth. And so whenever he opens his mouth to speak, he cries out proclaiming violence and destruction. And so he says, the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. Whew, it's a tough word. But if I hold that in, he says, I am weary of holding that in. He says, indeed, I cannot. Because his word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones and he can't. He just wants to explode and, and say it. But it's bringing him insult and reproach all day long. Because you know why? He's speaking truth. And if you read that chapter, chapter 20, the chief officer of the temple of Yahweh throws him in jail, binds him for speaking truth. Truth is really uncomfortable. If I tell you the story about Micaiah, if you don't know that guy's name, you think that's a weird name, fun story in Scripture to read. 
in 1 Kings. But this is what happens. I'll, I'll give you the gist of it. King of Israel, King of Judah. They're going to get together and they've got a really big decision to make. They're going to work together. But before they go, and they're wondering if they should go to war together. And before they go, they have a very wise idea and they think, they wonder, should we inquire of the Lord? Aha, uh -huh, good idea. And so the king of Judah says to the king of Israel, do you, do you have any prophets of Yahweh we could acquire of? And, and the king of Israel, he gathers 400 prophets. And they all say, you guys are so cool, go to war, and you're guaranteed you're going to be victorious. And then the king of Judah says, uh, do you have any prophets of Yahweh? And the guy in the king of Israel says, yeah, we got one. But I hate that guy. <laughs> it, it actually says, okay, it doesn't say hate that guy, but I'll read what it says in the Bible. But I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. <laughs> He's Micaiah, son of Imlah. I think that's what his name is. Why did he hate Micaiah? That guy spoke truth. Jesus was rejected for a similar reason. Not quite the same, but very, very close. Those guys spoke truth. Jesus not only spoke the truth, he is the truth. And he was rejected. Jesus is the ultimate authority, and he is truth. But there is no more, there is no greater love that anybody could ever have than what Jesus had. Let's keep reading in Luke 20. One day Jesus was teaching the temple, uh, sorry, he was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. You just think about that for a second. Who would have liked to have been in the temple when Jesus is there proclaiming the good news? I would love to hear Jesus preach. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. I would love to have seen this. These guys stroll up in their robes, probably in a V-shaped formation or something. I don't know, carrying a stick or something. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? <laughs> Would love to have been there. And if you read, I'm going to leave the rest of it out because you can study this at home. It's fascinating. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, all give an account of exactly this story. And Jesus tells them in all three of the accounts, some of them have an extra parable, but in all three of the, the, the next parable, Jesus, I'm not even going to tell you what he says, but he exposes them with a the question. Boom. He exposes them. And then he tells them a parable. And they are cut to the heart. And then at the end of that parable, look what he says. He says, and this is verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Amen? 
Everyone who falls on that stone will sit in a lawn chair with a drink in their hand. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. There is no comfortable place around the cornerstone. You don't want to be under it, and it hurts to be on it. That crushing, you can look in a study Bible, that, but that crushing aspect of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone refers to this final judgment, that on judgment day, you will stand before Jesus and some people will be crushed. Just think about what that looks like if you have a stone much bigger than that that falls and crushes on the ground. Can you see this, the dust that billows out from that? There's nothing left underneath it. It's been crushed. You could be there, but even if during this lifetime you try to resist that authority, you'll be broken to pieces on top of it. It's the nature of who Jesus is. We cannot conform the cornerstone to the shape that we want to build the house. We conform to the cornerstone. You guys with me? We don't tell the cornerstone which angle to go and which depth and all this kind of stuff. The cornerstone has set that direction. He is, he is the reference to, we go, to which we go when we answer these questions. And so we have to understand a little bit about who he is. Why did that concept offend the Pharisees? They didn't like the truth. Why was the truth so offensive to them? Who is, who is Jesus? Say again. He contradicted what they wanted to believe. It's true. What did they want to believe? Why? Remember, what was the first words we read in Luke chapter 20? They came up to Jesus. They come with their V-shape. I'm just imagining V-shape formation, okay? So they came up to Jesus in their V-shape formation with all their longs, uh, long robes and, and tassels and uh, prayer boxes on their arms. And, and they come to him and say, who gave you this? Authority. Why is Jesus so offensive to them? Because he just claimed to be the ultimate authority. Boy, that's uncomfortable. These guys claim to be working for the Lord. They're used to giving the orders. When they say, say people do. That's what they're used to. They're used to being the authority. And now here comes Jesus who sets himself up as this ultimate authority and ultimate truth. And boy, is that uncomfortable. The uncomfortable thing about God is that we don't get to decide who he is. I'm going to say that one more time because it's an important truth. The uncomfortable thing about God is that we don't get to decide who He is. So let's just break this down and make it really simple. 
Is God love? Yes, 1 John 4, verse 8 says it. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. If God was only love, who would ever reject him? Nobody. The builders would never have rejected a stone that represented love. The problem is that God not only is love, but is also truth. Let's read some of Jesus' words when he's praying about his disciples. In John chapter 17, he says this. Make them, he's praying to his father about his disciples, and he says, make them holy by your truth. It's a scary, if you just stop there and think about that statement, it's, a, it's already intimidating because he is acknowledging that the only way to holiness is by truth. There is an established set of parameters that we can't change. It's already set in place. And the only way to become holy or to become more like God, separate out of the world for God, is to understand those parameters, which is Jesus. That's the only way. And that's tough. Let's keep on reading. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. This book right here is truth. Boy, is that offensive. Everybody, I think, on this planet, every society on this planet has asked that question. Every philosopher, has, is, he asks questions that try, they try not to be able to answer. But the answers are actually indicated right there in that book because they point us to Jesus, who is the answer. He, his word, teach them your word, which is truth. There is such a thing as absolute truth. It's Jesus and his word. Okay? Keep on going. Let's read the rest of that verse. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. When Jesus came to give his body as a holy sacrifice, is there any love in that? Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. That's the kind of love you and I could do. Jesus gave far more than that. He was God and came to give his life for us. Incredible love. You can't even imagine, we can't even comprehend it, and yet the holiness comes through his truth. Do you see the, the both characteristics of God playing out in that? Kevin Friesen preached on September 8th that if you want to know what truth is, you have to look at who God is. And he said, if you want to know what love is, you have to look at who God is because you cannot separate love and truth. If you look in Scripture, you can never separate love and truth. If you look at who God is, you cannot separate love and truth because they represent who God is.
I'm just going to give you a really small sampling from Scripture so you know kind of what I'm thinking. But this is prevalent in virtually every page of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is just a real practical way of understanding it, okay? As I urged you, this is Paul writing to Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Let's just think about that for a second. False doctrines? The very fact that Paul's talking about false doctrines means that there's what? Yeah, there's false doctrines, but that means there is truth. There's the true doctrine. But let's think about that. If God was only truth, then you know what Christians ought to do with false doctrines? Shoot them down, decimate them, crush them, smash them, destroy them, and leave them shattered on the ground there and feel awfully victorious that we're not part of that false doctrine. But let's read the next verse. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You can't escape love and truth together in Scripture because they represent who God is. What about John's blessing in 2 John 1 verse 3? If you've ever prayed for grace, if you've ever thanked the Lord for His mercy, if you've ever desired peace from God, look at this. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. Because truth and love are an expression of who God is. In another passage, Paul and Timothy are commending themselves. A little bit of bragging. Remember we talked about that last Sunday? A little bit of bragging because they know and understand who God is, just like Jeremiah 9.24 says. Okay? They are commending themselves, and they give a list of like 28 things that you should do like them, because then that would mean you're following the Lord. And in that list, look at what they say. They include this, and I'm just going to be part of it. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, and then he starts going through the list, and then he includes in the list sincere love. And in truthful speech. Huh. It's not an either-or. Christianity isn't only truth, nor is it only love. It's both and. Look at Psalm 33. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is also full of his unfailing love. Jesus is far more than only love. He's also truth. He even, when He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, one of the names for the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. You ever think about that? 
If we want to be a church united under the Holy Spirit, we've got to include truth. That is a more powerful statement than you probably realize. Let me give you another example. I'll give you a quick example of how this works in Scripture. And then we'll close. In Psalm 89, a psalm about King David. In a reference to how the Lord spoke, he says, Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, and you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. If you keep on going to verse 28, I will maintain my love to him forever. And my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. So let's just think about that a little bit. Who's David? David, there's this Hebrew word, hakaton. David is this useless, worthless person who wasn't even invited to when his family gathering when Samuel came. And yet God picked him as the weakest, the youngest, the smallest, whatever. He is the most useless guy in the family. God picked him, turns him, gives him the strength of a warrior, creates him and turns him into this most majestic king that becomes not only very wealthy, but experiences miracul the miraculous nature of the Lord over and over and becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. And then he blesses him, he fills him with strength, and he anoints him, even with his Holy Spirit. And he makes a covenant with him that's never going to fail, and he establishes David. That all represents what? Guys, should I hide behind here or what? What does this represent? It's love. God is pouring out his love on David. And you think, man, that is good. Who wouldn't want that? And it's a good question. Everybody would want that. We could just stop right there and go home and Everybody would feel pretty good. Let's read the next verse. If his sons forsake my law, ooh, that's uncomfortable, and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. Very uncomfortable place to be. Truth. And you're thinking, but I thought you said God was loving. He is. Look at the next verse. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. This is how God works. It's throughout the entire Bible like this. God is love and truth. It's important to understand. Let me tell you a theme verse that if you were going to memorize a verse, and you got quite a few weeks to do it, this would be my goal for myself. And if I could pick how people who call Pansy Chapel their home church, how they would act, this would be a verse I would choose for our model to live by. Ephesians 4.15. Instead, 
Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, who sets the foundation for the, for the entire life which we live, or aspire to live, is Jesus. And we want to grow up into him in absolutely every respect. But to get there, we're going to have to be able to speak the truth in love. We cannot just speak truth because then it wouldn't represent who Jesus is. And if all we do is love, we can't represent who Jesus is. We're going to have to speak the truth in love. And it's our desire to become more like Jesus. If you're like me, you've got a long ways to go. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to do something in your mind right now. I want you, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand, but in your head, I just want you to think about if you would raise your hand, okay? Would you like to become more like Jesus in every respect? In your head, just imagine that I had asked you to raise your hand. Would you raise your hand? So then if we think about some of the questions that we're going to tackle in this series, do you want to be like Jesus in every respect? Do you want to be like Jesus in every respect? Do you want to speak the truth in love? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Christ, they will persecute us also. If they obeyed Christ, they will obey us also. Those are Jesus' words in John fifteen twenty. I would propose that if they rejected Christ, they will reject us also. But here's a true statement. If Jesus is worth living for, he's also worth dying for. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so wonderful. It is a privilege to know you. It is a privilege to have access to your word. It is a privilege to have experienced your love. It's a privilege to share your love. It's a privilege, Lord, to stand up for truth. And it's our desire, Jesus, to stand up and speak the truth, but with love. Over the course of these next weeks, could you come and stir within us, Lord? And show us what that looks like. Amen.